Welcome. Today we're talking to Philip Malcolm, an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska Omaha in the biomechanics department. Philip is known for his groundbreaking work investigating the energetics of walking and running with shoes, exoskeletons, and in general. Uh, tune in to learn more about the mysteries of how we burn calories and how research like Philip's is improving metabolic economy. And now, uh, here's Philip Malcolm. Hi, how are hey. you doing today? Good. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Uh, good to see you again. Absolutely. Yeah, this is exciting. I feel like it's been a while since we last connected. You and I met way back when uh, at Carnegie Mellon, where you were a visiting scholar, and we got to work together on a few projects involving the control of lower limb exoskeletons and prosthetics. I know before that you were focused on shoes, which I've always been curious to learn more about. And since then, you've had some major breakthroughs, primarily with uh, exosuit control. Lately, you've been going deeper into the fundamentals. I was wondering if you could share with our audience kind of a high-level overview of your career so far from your perspective. Yeah, uh, I, I remember it was back in 2013 when I uh, visited and we worked together in, in the lab where you were. Uh, yeah, I have my uh, training in uh, kinesiology, biomechanics, and then gradually transitioned towards more exoskeletons, wearable robotics. So, so I'm uh, kind of working at the interface between um, biomechanics and engineering of of wearable robotics. Uh, my PhD was um, somewhat working on footwear, but actually mostly on, on understanding walking and, and running and how to uh, transition between uh, the two. Uh, we were also doing some footwear projects, and it was mainly because my advisor back then uh, did a lot of consultancy projects for, for footwear companies. And um, yeah, that was actually what, what also um, kind of attracted me to, to biomechanics. I think like a lot of people, I'm very interested in, in sports and, and mostly endurance sport. And so I was like uh, interested in, in running and, and studying uh, running. But then we started um, using, and, and I think back then that was maybe somewhat more innovative. Your advisor, Steve Collins, worked on this a group in Michigan. Um, also, they they started working on, and, and this is not like meant in a negative way, but on, on like very um, simple uh, exoskeletons and prostheses that have like a single degree of freedom that are not portable, um, etc. You're, you're like better to a fixed actuator. Uh, but but are used to like really go much deeper on on the human uh, adaptation, and we did a study like that with our simple pneumatic uh, exoskeleton in in Ghent. Uh, did some studies, in fact, and and then yeah, I just got really interested uh, because uh, yeah, it, it just seems like this field is more and more exploding. But back then, this was really new, so I, I got interested in continuing and. Um, using biomechanics to study the human adaptation to exoskeletons. And then the topic in which I'm more interested uh, lately is uh, not only using biomechanics to 
um, study how people adapt to exoskeletons, how can we uh, optimize exoskeletons and exosuits, but also how can we use these new, still relatively new robotic devices to gain new insights that, that we can't uh, get otherwise. So we can like measure a lot of things with camera sensors, etc. But some things are like invisible to our sensors. Uh, one of those things is how your metabolic cost, so that's basically your um, calorie consumption, how that fluctuates uh, within a gait cycle. We have sensors that can uh, measure this like a slower time resolution, but for measuring this within the gait cycle, we're, we're trying actually to use uh, exoskeletons or all types of perturbation devices to to figure that out. So that that's my latest uh, interest. So I'm interested in uh, your kind of fascination with understanding the biomechanics more deeply. A lot of uh, folks involved in the R&D of exoskeletons tend to follow this fairly linear progression from early stage uh, development and prototyping. You sort of get the design of the device dialed in. You demonstrate that it's working nicely for a small population. And then you expand the study population. You refine the device and you work towards commercialization of that device. You've been the lead author on some pretty big studies in terms of uh, impressive results uh, with with exoskeleton devices, but you have not at all gone in that direction towards, you know, building uh, products, I guess. Um, so I'm, I'm yeah. curious your perspective on this uh, sort of choice that you face uh, as an academic investigator. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel in general, <laughs> I'm, I'm not the most practical guy and, and apparently that reflection <laughs> in my research uh, also, um, I like to make things complicated, not overly complicated, but, but uh, yeah, I, I haven't um, personally led anything that like um, went on to like a, a simple, useful device. I, I do see and and uh, from seeing different patients with peripheral artery disease, patients who've had a stroke, I, I see how their impairments are can be really important. And sometimes we we have like our own experiences with gait impairments that are very minor. Like if we tear a muscle, break a leg or something like that, then you can like really feel like even though you're healthy and you're gonna get a healthy gait within weeks or, or months, like just not being able to to get around is is really debilitating and and um, I can see how, how that's really important and affecting people's lives. And I can see how those people are like asking for practical uh, devices and, and so it, I think it, that's that's very um, Im important and I, I do like respect a lot uh, labs that that go more the linear trajectory uh, towards like just getting a product uh, out there and I, and I see how that's also like very challenging that that comes like with all kind of challenges that I don't don't think about uh, like how to make the device 
safe, how to make it work under all kinds of circumstances, regulation, how to make it affordable. We've actually started uh, just doing some survey just to see what what patients want and, and that's sometimes not so, so obvious. We as academics are maybe interested in exoskeletons, but some patient groups might not want to wear it for reasons that you don't immediately think about. I, I do see that like a lot of those efforts are already on, ongoing. Uh, my one of the advisors where I worked as a, a postdoc, uh, Connor Wall, uh, developed very advanced exosuits for persons with a stroke. And, and those are now really being used and, and shown to have certain benefits in, in clinical trials. Um, I, I see that you are also working on these research-grade exoskeletons, but also uh, helping provide some, some more applicable ones become available through through Humotech. So yeah, I, I certainly respect that and, and see that a lot of those efforts are ongoing. Yeah, my, my way to think about it is just like if there are already groups who are going this linear, practically oriented route, then maybe my way to to innovate and contribute is, is just to, to try to find find like, yeah, let's let's straightforward niches where we just focus on understanding things in, in a new way. And and um, yeah, well of course we're also hoping that those can can lead to um, practical uh, applications. I, I think my research that I did as a PhD and early postdoc uh, studying the influence of timing with with an ankle exoskeleton. We've we've never developed like an, an actual available product, but I think like just the findings from that are probably reflected in some small way in a lot of devices that are now available, even if it's just that they provide the option to alter the timing. Um, our current research on getting a better understanding of the metabolic costs of different phases of the uh, gait cycle, um, our underlying thought with this um, is that this uh, could again allow to um, design better um, exoskeletons, but not only exoskeletons, all types of uh, devices that, that help you better. Like if um, someone has an increased metabolic cost and, and that can be uh, very challenging. Many diseases like stroke, for example, increase metabolic cost on average uh, by about 60%. Um, so that would be almost the equivalent of uh, carrying a backpack of 60% of your body weight with, with you. Um, I, I don't think that any one of us walks around with like a 30, 40 kilogram backpack. That would be extremely hard. Like you can do it, but it, it's, it's extremely hard. If we can understand where exactly in the gate phase this problem comes from, then maybe we can design exoskeletons that yet assist you specifically during that part of the gait cycle or um, exercises that specifically target that part of, of the gait cycle or, or simpler devices than exoskeletons. So we're, we're always, we always try to do have important practical applications in, in mind. Yeah, when I think about your work, I don't think of it as impractical at all. You're so humble about this. 
I see instead that um, through your experience uh, developing exoskeletons and evaluating their impact on metabolic costs, you've developed this appreciation and desire to understand more deeply why the relationship between exoskeleton control and metabolics is so complex. I think for a lot of folks working in this field, it's a bit of like black magic. We, we test ideas and we see what the metabolic cost is. And it's not, it's not necessarily hypothesis driven, at least not in a detailed sense. And I think the, the progress in the field over the past couple of decades has shown us that, well, simple models can kind of get us started on understanding how a wearable robotic system could be helpful to energetics. There's like additional layers of detail uh, that we need to get into to understand how to make these devices more useful. And I think what's interesting about how you approach this is you're not trying to build physically realistic neuromusculoskeletal models of the human, um, which is an interesting area of work. And a, a lot of people are working on that. You've kind of approached the modeling in a very different sort of simpler and more uh, abstracted way that I think is interesting. So I don't know if you can describe this in a way that is um, uh, intelligible to the layman, but uh, I was wondering if you could kind of describe your approach uh, to, to modeling because uh, it's really uh, not something I think our listeners will be used to hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, now now you're going um, very very deep into the uh, one project with, which is currently now our NSF um, funded project. So yeah, I'm I'm seeing <laughs> a pattern just like I tend to stay away from just building physical products and try to find my own niche um, within the topic of. Um, estimating metabolic costs of walking with an exoskeleton or, or just walking in general. Uh, the majority of the groups now use what you would call um, for for engineers a white box approach. So they would like build computer simulations of walking that are as realistic as possible, use a realistic 3D model of Walking often use uh, actual motion capture data as input, so it's not all simulation. It's really um, simulation plus experiments that are combined to estimate uh, metabolic costs of walking, metabolic cost of walking with an exoskeleton. And these model-based methods can also estimate uh, metabolic cost of different phases of the uh, gait cycle. And... Yeah, it, it's impressive what what he can do. In in a lot of cases, those predictions uh, agree relatively well with uh, measurements of stride average metabolic costs. But there's certainly still some room for improvement. Those predictions, if you compare different model based methods, those predictions can can be quite far away from each other sometimes. And I think that the problem is once you uh, go into or, or the challenge once you go into a simulation based approach um you you can there's never like one 
uh, method. There's never one simulation uh, model of a human or one type of algorithm. You have to choose between different options that each have uh, different assumptions. The, the easiest thing to um, visualize is most of these models work with a, a three-dimensional model of the skeleton and the muscles. And there's like a few of those and you choose the one that's most similar to your uh, participants, but you're like making an assumption that that model is representative for the age, the dimensions of your uh, participants. So you, and, and you have to do assumption after assumption. You have to uh, choose which uh, 3D model to use, which um, algorithm, which equations to estimate uh, metabolic cost. Um, and, and so uh, we're trying to uh, use a um, radically uh, different approach, which also has its limitations and, and uncertainties, but, but at least I think it's, it's very uh, different. So um, nowadays, and, and I think especially this year, we're, we're seeing that uh, more in everyday uh, lives, there's, there's been a lot of advances in uh, uh, system identification uh, algorithms like neural networks, et, et cetera. Um, and so instead of um, having to use a lot of assumptions to use, to choose a, a simulation uh, method, we're, we're just uh, using experimental data. And then we have some system ID algorithm that tries to uh, figure out uh, what happens uh, concretely in order to estimate how uh, metabolic cost fluctuates uh, within a gate cycle. Uh, we're uh, collecting measurements of metabolic costs from uh, human experiments with different types of perturbations. So different parts of the gate cycle are perturbed during each of those experimental measurements. And then we uh, feed that into a, a system ID algorithm that's uh, tries to use those perturbed measurements to estimate how uh, metabolic costs fluctuates uh, with, within the gate cycle. Um, and um, yeah, there's some like uh, relatively uh, similar examples in, in like totally other uh, fields of, of science, uh, like for example, in um, um, economics, they use system ID to predict how time series are going to fluctuate. So, so this is not entirely uh, novel, but, but uh, within biomechanics, we think this is a different approach uh, than using these more realistic simulations. It's very different because we use less assumptions. And because of that, um, I think it's less like biased when we when we have an estimation at least that's not determined by uh, all those assumptions that we uh, use um, certainly also has its limitations it's very hard to verify if what we get is an accurate estimation and we have some indirect ways to uh, to try to uh, verify the uh, accuracy of our estimations it's fascinating so in 10 or 20 years, uh, as you've continued to flesh out these methods, what would you like to be able to predict? What do you, what do you want to do with these models? Yeah, I think I, I like the timeline 10, 20 years that 
gives us a lot of time. Hopefully we get <laughs> this much time. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I think if we think in such a long timeline, uh, then I hope that the uh, within stride metabolic cost can be similar to how all sorts of other measurements improved in resolution. So um, let's take, for example, uh, a lot of you have seen plantar pressure measurements that are used to um, select uh, which shoes you need to wear or which insoles you need to uh, get. So if, you, if you're not familiar with those, you, you can f even find those types of devices in, in certain store like Walmart, I think, in, in some places, they have a plate where you have to stand on. The system measures how your uh, pressure is distributed over your uh, foot and then uses it to prescribe which insole uh, you need to uh, wear. Uh, those measurements used to be purely static uh, back 30 years, um, 40 years ago, actually, in the, yeah, maybe up to uh, 30, 20 years ago. Instead of having this computerized system, you had to stand in some kind of a foam box. So we could only measure the pressure distribution uh, below your foot during standing still. And so that can be somewhat useful to know which type of uh, insole you need to wear. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's not as good as if you can take a measurement, a dynamic measurement uh, during a walking gait cycle or uh, during a running gait cycle. If you uh, go by uh, running stores, some running stores have a, a dynamic system that measures the pressure below your foot. And so they have you run over this type of plate and they're able to measure uh, the pressure underneath your foot during different parts of the uh, uh, stance phase. And so that's much more uh, relevant for knowing which insole or which shoe you need during running because of course your pressure beneath your foot during running is different than when you're just standing still and so um, this is like a transition from a very low resolution static measurement to a uh, dynamic measurement and, and i think looking back that that happens for most of the measurement methods in in biomechanics, all everything goes from dynamic to static and everything becomes faster and faster. Like we used to have still photography to try to understand how animals and humans move. Now we have high speed cameras. Uh, we used to have uh, very simple motion capture systems. Now those motion capture systems can measure things at a very fine uh, time resolution. And so um, ideally, I think that um, right now, I think for practical applications, we only use the, what I would call um, static metabolic costs. So these computer simulations, they're usually only used or experimental measurements are only used for estimating the average costs of a gate cycle. No one is really using the cost of individual phases. And so my ambition is that if we can develop methods that can estimate the uh, costs of individual phases, that this will be useful for uh, different applications for uh, deciding which shoes elite runners might need to uh, wear because maybe it helps specifically with their push-up uh, or um, all kinds of 
assistive devices uh, like um, AFOs, uh, for example, those are ankle foot orthoses. These are used in uh, a lot of impairments like uh, stroke, peripheral artery disease, um, patient, patients with just uh, weak uh, calf muscles. Um, and so I can very well imagine uh, that this type of orthosis um, has different effects on different parts of the gait cycle. So, for example, it might actually help you with push-off but it might actually increase the cost of your swing phase just because it makes your uh, leg uh, heavier. And so uh, I think in 10, 20 years, having improved methods to be able to understand the effects of each of those phases uh, will be able, will, will allow us to develop uh, better uh, exercises or, or better devices to target exactly where, where the problem uh, is situated in the gait cycle. I love that you brought up the example of the the shoe store uh, because that experience is, you know, motivating for a lot of the things we do here at Humotech. When you're shopping for shoes or orthoses or prostheses, there are an overwhelming number of different options. And given the practical matter of, of, of the time and cost involved in trying all of your different options, um, you wind up having to make a highly subjective uh, decision. You may buy the product that looks the coolest or has the lowest price uh, or a product that maybe somebody you know uh, has had success with, um, but you really don't typically have the opportunity to um, compare uh, different solutions on the basis of, of some kind of an objective outcome. I feel like with the equipment we see in shoe stores now, we're getting there. Uh, but in, in my personal experience, it's still a bit of a frustrating process where the machine does some data crunching and the sales associate uh, tells you, well, this is the shoe for you. Here, here it is. As the, as the user, you don't get a lot of insight into what's going on. That's a bit of a tangent. But um, I wanted to also comment on how the work in the work that we're doing, we're particularly focused on prosthetics and, and uh, foot prosthetics and ankle foot orthoses, as you know. We're very interested in this question of uh, metabolic energy consumption. Um, it's not the only outcome that matters. There's a whole host of other outcomes that matter to to you know, people in the real world. Uh, but the problem with it has been that there's no practical way of measuring it uh, in a clinical setting. Maybe for mm -hmm. elite athletes, it's a, yeah. it's a, a, an option. Mm -hmm. um, but for, you know, the, the average person, it's, it's not. And so, you know, practically speaking, we wind up using subjective measures, basically perceived exertion, so, you know, how do you feel uh, about your energy consumption uh, in these different experimental conditions? And I think roughly people can tell uh, whether or not uh, they're, they're sort of consuming more energy or not. But this is a super imprecise, biased, uh, and unpredictable measure. So this is a long-winded way of saying that uh, I look forward to the day where, you know, we can actually measure uh, energy consumption uh, in a more 
practical and uh, accurate manner. Do you have a thought to share? <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm just glad you brought it up. I was actually already starting to think we've been talking about metabolic cost, metabolic cost the whole time. And uh, yeah, in, indeed, it's, it's not uh, necessarily the most important thing. And, and it's also impractical to, to measure. Feel free to go on and finish your question and, and then I'll talk or... <laughs> Yeah, um, maybe it's a, a a bookmark for a future conversation um, because I think the field really does need to figure out a practical measure of, of energy mm -hmm. consumption. But yeah, I was going to segue into, uh, you know, again, going back to the beginning of, of us knowing each other, you were our very first uh, customer of a full CapLex system, um, which is awesome. <laughs> Uh, it was a really exciting time building that sort of first commercial grade uh, system after having done this in the lab for uh, quite a few years. Yeah, you know, I don't want this to get overly promotional, but uh, you've used the system for a long time, uh, six plus years now. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to how it has enabled you to do a wide variety of things. Um, and perhaps more easily and efficiently uh, than than otherwise would have been possible. Yeah, I I think the system was very innovative, like you highlighted in in the beginning of the talk back in the early two thousand. A lot of research with exoskeletons followed this very linear approach. Groups would make designs, then they would like build an exoskeleton and, and have some quick that uh, with it to demonstrate that it like works or, or maybe not. Uh, um, but so, yeah, I think a, a lot of groups would, each group would build their own physical um, exoskeleton and, and uh, there's, of course, very innovative, interesting designs, but it's not very... Um, reproducible, like then you see this study on this exoskeleton or robotic prosthesis. And as another group, like you can't like use or reproduce this until you build the same thing. And usually not all the details are, are in there. So yeah, I think your idea from your, your group and, and other groups to start to work with more versatile off-board test bed and that like are that you then connect to different end effectors um, that that's just allowed to spend much more time on studying the the biomechanics so um, we, we did not have to build an ankle prosthesis uh, it was already there we were able to do a first uh, study with it uh, that that was mostly done by my former colleague Kota Takahashi yeah, very quickly within, I think, almost one year, we were able to use the device and, and do a study and then, then shortly thereafter uh, do other studies. We, we started to work with um, slight, a slightly different end effector, this uh, uh, waste tether that allows to pull at different types of the gate cycle um, at the uh, waste. Um, again, so we did some minor hardware development there, but but most of it was already ready from from what we got from the uh, Caplex 
system. We did not have to do the low-level control. We already had an activation unit. We just had to slightly modify how we would attach to the waste and, and build a um, controller, which certainly challenging in, in different ways because then it's very different from exoskeletons and prosthesis. When you pull at the waist, you have to think in a different way, write a controller that acts on parts of the step cycle rather than uh, the, the gate cycle. Uh, but all in all, uh, that just went way faster uh, than if if you would have to build the hardware and the controller from a scratch. And it also makes everything uh, much more reproducible, which is something that we want in in, in research. Uh, um, so um, I haven't seen that many um, waste tether studies yet, but, but definitely the research with prosthesis and exoskeletons uh, has is a lot of Groups are reproducing work from uh, other groups or, or building onto it, which allows to uh, verify results and, and just build upon study after study rather than having to start from scratch again. Um, yeah, probably in a similar way, like uh, software code nowadays, uh, you rarely have to build something from scratch. That that would be crazy to to have to do. And and so I think in a similar way, I think building an exoskeleton or a prosthesis from scratch probably will will also become more and more rare. I think. <laughs> I do hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. I uh, I can think of. Uh, one other Caplex system user that is uh, pulling on waste tethers. Uh, I'll see if I can get them on the future of the podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned Coda. I think one of the great things that you guys have going for you at UNO um, is this highly collaborative uh, biomechanics core. Um, with a lot of different uh, investigators. You also, as an individual, have worked in, in many different labs over the years. I just thought maybe you could share some philosophies uh, around collaboration, uh, because I, I get the impression that's been very important to your career. I'm really excited about interdisciplinary uh, research. Um, again, and we've been repeating there's already a few times, but um, exoskeletons research used to be very engineering focused and, and then groups started to combine it with biomechanics, motor learning study, exercise physiology. And as a result of that, I think groups became more and more interdisciplinary. The, the group where I worked at a, a postdoc uh, we were developing uh, soft uh, robotic exosuits, um, and I think that that lab like really had like an extremely wide range of people with different skills and backgrounds, some that you wouldn't even immediately uh, think about. So we had, of course, uh, researchers, engineers, also people um, coming from industry who really know how to uh, develop actual uh, prototypes, um, people with design or 
textile design background who, who would know how to design and, and sew the textile components of the um, exosuits. A lot of clinical people also, I, I was less involved or not involved with that personally, but yeah, they, they also had a lot of people with uh, PT or uh, medicine background. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited about uh, interdisciplinary uh, research. Uh, my, myself, I people look me up, we'll see we have like a very collaborative environment with a lot of facilities at uh, the University of Nebraska at Omaha. But uh, myself, I like to work in relatively uh, smaller uh, teams, but but still like with someone with like a different background than, than me. That's just very um, enriching, uh, I think. Uh, on, on one part, it allows you to do more interdisciplinary things, which is usually where, where the innovation happens within the single discipline research. Uh, usually it's, it's like really hard to still innovate. Uh, the other thing that I'm figuring out more and, and more, and that's sometimes challenging, but also really interesting is when you work with someone in a different discipline, very often you have to like uh, translate what you're what you're saying and thinking about how you explain certain concepts and, and the other way around, like, uh, so you're, you have to do some kind of translation exercise, which I think um, is interesting and also just helps learn how to uh, communicate your, your findings or ideas better. Um, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like our field is inherently multidisciplinary and I think we're, our field is coming to, to really accept that, which is great. There are so many really hard problems to solve in the field. And so uh, we have to do everything that we can to get the greatest diversity of perspectives uh, tackling the problem. You know, I, I also think we just need more, more brain power. So we've, you know, we've worked really hard in the design of our system to make it accessible to just about anybody. And I think one of the things I'm proudest of is getting to work more and more um, with, you know, universities and investigators that I've never heard of because they come from some other, other field. From our perspective, uh, the field's certainly growing. We're also trying to um, get connected with folks earlier in their journey so I feel like in the past, you know, wearable robotics was uh, something, you know, only done by advanced PhD students at the most elite universities. And I think now today, you know, getting involved in this R&D is quite a bit more accessible. You know, we invite high school students to come intern at Hemotech, and many of them have learned how to use the system. And we regularly work with, with clinicians you know, may have a lot of experience working with uh, patients who use these devices, uh, but no experience designing or controlling them. Um, and, you know, I've been amazed at how quickly uh, folks can, can kind of get up to speed. So I think, though what we do is inherently complicated, and uh, you can get into some technical weeds really fast, it, there's no reason for it to be 
there's no reason why it should be hard to get involved. So that helps me uh, segue into my next question, which is uh, for folks listening who, who might want to get involved in your work, they're looking for a job or they want to collaborate on a project, uh, how, how best to find Philip Malcolm and, and connect? I don't uh, have the social media currently, but um, people can uh, email me at the email address at p malcolm that's p m a l c o l m at unomaha.edu or they can uh, just uh, google our our department uh, uh, they can google uh, uno biomechanics and they'll end up on the department uh, website uh, of the biomechanics department at university of nebraska at uh, omaha uh, we're a small university but um Within this university, have a really privileged position with uh, amazing facilities, many different motion capture labs, practically all the uh, tools that are available in in biomechanics, uh, treadmills, motion capture systems, uh, machine shops that are fully equipped. So, um, yeah, people can also look for the department website and and just see what kind of interesting research on gait or prosthetics or cardiovascular biomechanics, et cetera, is, is going on uh, there. Are, are you affiliated with um, some kind of a clinical uh, hospital or, or center? Within the University of Nebraska um, system, we are one of the campuses um, and the medical campus is actually also in the same uh, city in uh, Omaha. Actually, I just rode my bike for 15 minutes from the medical center to, to here this morning. So it's, it's really nearby and a lot of our faculty have uh, collaborations. So I think it's maybe kind of the best of both worlds. We have a department where we have a lot of space for labs and, and expanding. We're not like competing with another group for uh, labs and, and space, but are really close to a medical center uh, where we can collaborate to do experiments in uh, patients, etc. So yeah, we, we really have a lot of facilities here in, in Omaha and, and also more and more excellent people. I want to give a shout out to actually how cool a t a, the town of Omaha is. Uh <laughs> I've been privileged since I started the company to travel to a lot of different cities. And when I heard uh, Philippe was going to Omaha, I, I had to remind myself where Omaha was. Um, <laughs> but uh, some, some amazing memories visiting you there, including uh, a really good mountain biking ride. So, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, most people, it exceeds people's expectations and it's not um like flat like people expect from nebraska we have a city center um yeah it's a <laughs> nice place uh um well nothing too special but a really nice place to live i have a really random question that maybe i should have asked you earlier but it's 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 bothering me so i'm gonna ask it uh <laughs> in in my field or in in my world which is all about tech and startups and entrepreneurship by far and away uh, the hottest word right now is AI. Uh, uh -huh. 
Do you consider yourself an AI researcher? It seems to me that you're using many of the algorithms, but I guess you don't brand yourself that way. Uh, uh, no, I wouldn't dare to say that I'm innovating in um, AI. Uh, we're, um, I guess we're just using neural networks, for example, with, which are at the basis of, um, I think, the um, current language models. So, so that's something that, that we uh, use and um, we're definitely benefiting of how things become more and more available. Coding is becoming easier now. Um, uh, using computer clusters where you can uh, like have certain codes run at not new at all, but uh, yeah, it just becomes more and more available at universities also here. So um, I think we just um, use it, but I wouldn't dare to say that we're innovating in AI. <laughs> well, I think yeah. this is why it's yeah. such a hot buzzword right now, because <laughs> even though the field is pretty old, we're now hitting a point of accessibility <laughs> and scalability where everyday folks are seeing AI everywhere. So I actually think uh, your, your, your timing and the potential uh, sort of commercial applicability of what you're doing um, is, is ripe. So maybe we should talk more about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe when you uh, visit, um, yeah. Question makes me think, uh, when will there be a language model that allows to like say wh which controller you want for your Humotech exoskeleton <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> it will just put it together on the fly. <laughs> yeah, I want to be that, able to ask uh, yeah. chat GPT what <laughs> pairs of shoes I should buy for yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. optimal running performance. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we're, we're up against the hour, and in closing, I ask all my guests uh, if you could please share a call to action with our audience. Yeah, I um, think we've touched on this a few times during, during the talk and partly responsible for this. So um, I think the field of robotic exoskeletons has been exciting and um back when i started we kept hearing this promise that um, exoskeletons are going to be everywhere I, I think there was actually a paper that said they were going to be everywhere in the mid 2020s and, and so now we're we're here and that's still <laughs> not the case um and and then we've also talked about how uh, we've been focusing on certain things that are not necessarily the end to everything like reducing um getting bigger and bigger metabolic cost reductions i've, I've sort i'm certainly partly guilty to to that uh, uh focus um yeah maybe that's also not something that's like really what i'm going to make exoskeletons that useful that that everyone will uh want to use them so um yeah, I think uh, researchers should like try to um, innovate in the objectives and and types of methods that they uh, use, rather than just trying to incrementally in improve on on other 
research. Uh, maybe that can be thinking about totally different uh, tasks to optimize, like uh, balance or sit to stand, or maybe things that we haven't thought about. Maybe that can be uh, using completely different uh, objectives, for example, comfort, perception, some some uh, groups are of in Michigan are uh, work, working on that. Maybe after all, that's, that's just more important for a patient that a device feels comfortable and, and does what they want it to do rather than uh, having the biggest uh, metabolic cost reduction. So um, yeah, I, I think if I get to uh, give a call to action, I, I think I would just like to see um, as much as possible original research rather than getting um, better at what other groups are already um, doing. Yeah. That's awesome. I think it's really uh, great how you can, in one hand, uh, be working on improving the outcome, the you know the measure, metabolic cost measures, uh, and in the other hand, acknowledging uh, the fundamental limitations and kind of uh, expanding uh, our abilities in other areas. I too, you know, probably drank too much of the metabolic cost uh, Kool Aid uh, <laughs> early on, <laughs> and um, you know, well, I haven't disregarded it. Um, you know, when you zoom out and you realize, uh, you know, there's other ways to make it easier to get around in the world. You know, maybe maybe it's better to reduce your metabolic costs by means of a bicycle. You, you know, can start to see the, the forest for the trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Other devices, yeah. <laughs> this has been uh, really fun. And uh, yeah. I appreciate you sharing your insights with us all, Philippe. Thanks a lot. It was fun to talk to you. Yeah. Let's Hope do this again soon sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. Bye.